So we're in the middle of a, of a series on the book of Romans. As a matter of fact, we're almost at the end of this series for the semester. And the past few weeks, we've covered chapters 9 and 10, and today we're going to cap, uh, cover chapter 11. And these chapters have been a little difficult to understand, a little difficult to comprehend. As a matter of fact, Timothy Keller calls these chapters 9, 10, and 11 one of the hardest scriptures to understand. And I'd like to summarize these, these chapters in this way. Chapter 9, I'd like to summarize as Israel's, Israel's past election. And if you recall, we saw that God sovereignly chose, he predestined, he foreknew those he would make righteous. And then chapter 10, I'd like to summarize it as Israel's present rejection. And we saw how God sovereignly again hardened the hearts of those who refused the gospel. And today, today I'd like to summarize it in this way, chapter 11, Israel's future restoration. And we're going to answer the question, is God done with the nation of Israel? Is God done completely with his chosen people, the Jew? And it, we're going to cover all of chapter 11. And the beauty of, the, of these three chapters combined is, is, is the fact that God's promises will always be fulfilled. God's promises of infinite love, God's pro promises of security, God's promise that he made to us in chapter 8 that there is no condemnation in Christ Jesus is true. And sometimes we feel that God is not there with us. But God has a plan, just like he has a plan for Israel. And though we sometimes feel that God has abandoned us, he's got a better purpose, a reason for that. And we're going to see that. We're going to see that today, why God is treating and has treated Israel the way he has, what the purpose is. And there's three main points we will see today of the reason why God has set aside Israel. But before I get into it, just because Pastor Adrian mentioned the Cowboys and the Steelers, I got to say my two cents, okay? What do you think? I'm going to go up here and not say anything about the Steelers on the day that I preach when the Cowboys play the Steelers? But let me tell you this, it's, it's, it's interesting the fact that we can combine today's message with today's game. And this is, this is how. <laughs> if you recall, in Genesis 12, God chose this one man, Abraham. And he says, Abraham, from you will, I'll make this great nation. I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you. And we've seen the blessing that God has given the Israelite, the Jewish people, through Abraham. In football, God chose this one man, Art Rooney, and he said, hey, I want you to make the Steelers my team, God said. And I will bless that team and bless those that bless you. As a matter of fact, we've seen his blessings. They're called six Super Bowls. <laughs> but we'll turn back to God's people, the Israelites. And because God's people were disobedient, he has set them aside. But he has set him aside and he's allowed another people, the Gentiles, us, to partake in those blessings. This season, looks like the Steelers have been set aside. <laughs> and he's allowing the Cowboys to be blessed. But, as we will see today, God's not done with the Israelites' people and God's not done with the Steelers, all right? So we'll see that today. So chapter, chapter 11. 
We're going to cover the whole chapter. It's, it's a lot of material. So I'm going to break it down in some passages and then go back and break it down further in those verses. So uh, I encourage you to open up your Bibles. We're looking at Romans chapter 11. If you don't have a Bible with you, you can always grab the one beneath your, your chair there. Um, you can follow along. The page number for that is in your worship guide. And as always, we will have the scripture up on the, on the screen. Let me open this up in prayer and we'll dig into God's word today. Heavenly Father, we just thank you so much, again, that we can gather corporately and worship. And we thank you that you've given us the gift of your son, Jesus Christ, and through him we can have salvation. Uh, who, put, who puts their trust in him, Father? Lord, as always, I ask that you change us from the inside out. And as we read today and as we read, some of your words are difficult to understand, but let us realize that you are a sovereign God that you have a bigger purpose, Father, that you are the Alpha and the Omega. You know the beginning and the end, and we're just, we're just here, Father. Guide us, help us. As always, I ask that I be moved aside and your words speak through me, that I'm just a vessel, Father, and that we keep, leave out of here different people than we came in. Father, we do this for your glory and our good. Amen. So three reasons that we can get out of this, of God's word today. Why God has put aside the Israel nation. And here's my point, first point and my first reason that Paul has. My point number one is this. God's presence setting aside of Israel is partial. God's presence setting aside of Israel is partial. And here where Paul has to say in verse 1, again chapter 11. Paul says this. I ask then, has God rejected his people? He says, by no means, for I myself am an Israelite, a descendant of Abraham, a member of the tribe of Benjamin. God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. Do you not know what the scripture says about Elijah, how he appeals to God against Israel? Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I alone am left, and they seek my life. But what is God's reply to him? I have kept for myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So too at the present time there is a remnant chosen by grace. So Paul answers the question right away. Hey, is God done with his people? And he says, no way, by no means. And he gives three examples. He says, hey, exhibit A. Reason number why, one, I know that God is not done completely with Israel. It's me. I'm a Jew, Paul says. As a matter of fact, I'm the Jew of the Jews, yo soy el mero mero. I am a descendant of Abraham. I come from the tribe of Benjamin. And God is using me to share his word. If God was done with me, would I be here? God has saved me. He can save you, is what Paul is saying. And if you recall, in Acts 9, we, we hear the story of Paul's conversion. Paul was this really bad Jew. He persecuted the Christians. He was there in the stoning of Stephen. And one day as he rode on his horse to Damascus, he gets knocked off his horse and Christ presents himself to him and he's converted. And Paul is saying, I have a purpose and that's what God is using me for. And then he uses a second example. He says, exhibit B, Elijah. You guys remember Elijah, he says. And he talks about the story of Elijah. And you can find this story in 1 Kings chapter 19. It's, it's an awesome story if you guys haven't read it. This is kind of how it goes. You've got Elijah, God's chosen prophet. And you've got 450 prophets of Baal, a false god. 
And they're there. they got two altars, and it's a showdown. It's like the Cowboys and the Steelers right there, all right? And they're showing the showdown. And so Elijah goes, okay, let, let's see what your God can do, prophets of Baal. So the prophets of Baal, they start doing all these things, and they start praying to their gods and show yourself, give me something, and crickets, nothing. And it's hilarious. Elijah starts mocking him and says, where's your God? Is he in the bathroom? Is he asleep? Nothing. So the prophets give up and say, okay, Elijah, it's your turn. And Elijah says, check this out. And he prays to God, and there's fire, and there's rain, and it hadn't rained for years, and it's just raining, and, and everything, the, the altars get burned from the prophets. It's just huge, and Elijah's like, this is my God. Your God's got nothing on my God. And he proves to the other people who the true God is. But then there's this queen Jezebel and this king Ahab, really mean people. They find out what Elijah has done, and they're threatened to kill him. Just a side note. For you young couples out there who don't have children or planning on having more children, don't name your kids Jezebel and Ahab. Not, not a good name to have for your kids. These guys were mean, all right? So Elijah, this is what Paul's quoting here. Elijah's all freaking out and scared after God has shown what he can do. He's freaking out and God says, well, what's wrong, Elijah? He says, well, I'm the only Israelite. Everybody, the queen has destroyed everybody and I'm alone. And God says, No. I have chosen for myself 7,000 men, he says, a remnant saved by grace. And that's Paul's third example. There's a remnant, he says. There was a remnant in Elijah's time. There was a remnant in Paul's time. And there's a remnant in our time today. There's a lot of Jews that trusted their Christ as their Messiah. That is a remnant that's been saved by grace. So Paul's saying, Israel isn't done completely. It's a partiality. God has chosen some still to believe. Then he goes on. And he says this. He says in verse 6. But if it's by grace, Paul says, it is no longer on the basis of works. Otherwise, grace would no longer be grace. What then? Israel failed to obtain what it was seeking. The elect obtained it. But the rest were hardened, as it is written. God gave them a spirit of stupor. That word stupor there, guys, means drowsy, sleepy. You know when you first wake up and you're not awake and you're not asleep? Uh, kind of like where you guys are right now, not awake and not asleep. But that word stupor, it, it is that. It's drowsy. And I couldn't find an English word that fits uh, correctly with what stupor's trying to, to emphasize, that word. But there's one in Spanish. And the word is modorro. Have you ever heard that word, modorro? I remember growing up, my mom, when I would wake up as a little kid, she would go, oh, está modorrito, mijo. You know, I had lagañas in my eyes, and I was all sleepy, drowsy. Well, Paul is saying here, God has given you a spirit of modorro. You're sleepy. You're drowsy. You don't clearly see. And then he goes on and says, eyes that would not see and ears that would not hear, down to this very day, even today, he says, and then he quotes the psalm and says, and David says, let their table become a snare and a trap, a stumbling block and a retribution for them, that their eyes be darkened so that they cannot see and bend their backs forever. So Paul says this, those Israelites that were seeking righteousness through works have been given a spirit of stupor. 
He says those that have been chosen and saw grace for what it is, salvation through grace, those eyes have been awakened. It is not by works. It is by grace. Paul keeps repeating. We see that in Romans. We see the scripture. You cannot earn your salvation. And the Israelites failed to see that. They had to work. They had to do all this religious stuff. They got to do this and do this and do that. So hopefully they can merit righteousness. And God is saying, no, there's only one righteous person. And that was my son, Jesus Christ. And when you put your trust in what he did, when you say, Father, I'm sorry for what I've done. Please forgive me of my sin. He comes into your life. And all the sins that you did in the past, all the sins that you're doing in the present, all the sins you'll do in the future, they've been forgiven. Romans 4 tells us once you put your trust in Jesus Christ, you've been declared justified. God looks down on you and doesn't see the sinful person, ugly person that you are. He sees the righteous, beautiful person Jesus Christ did and what he did for you and for me at the cross. And Paul is saying, don't you get that? And the reason you don't get that, you are drowsy. Open your eyes. Accept the truth. As I look around here, uh, as I see my community, I'm discouraged. There's just so many people that don't understand salvation through grace. They believe that it's Jesus Christ did what he did plus this. Yeah, I believe what he did, but I got to do this, and I got to do that. I got to save myself. And Paul says, no, wake up. It is by grace. It is a gift that you can only get by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. I remember one day this lady walks into my office wanting to get baptized. And when I have conversations with anybody wanting to get baptized, I'm sh- I make, try to make sure that they understand what salvation means. I try to share the gospel with them. So I told her, so what does it mean for you to be saved? Well, I've been good enough. I go to church. I, 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 I read my Bible. I, 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 I. And that's not it. So I shared with her the gospel. And it's really cool when you share with somebody the gospel and their eyes are open when they're no longer modorro, when the lagañas are knocked off their eyes, and they see the truth. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. And she got it. And you know what she said? She goes, how come you guys don't talk about that on Sundays? Like, what? We talk about that every Sunday. We teach the gospel. We share the gospel. We read it in this word, what the true gospel means. But see, she didn't get it. She understood it in her head, but she didn't feel it in her heart, seven inches apart from salvation. I remember about 14 years ago, I was a big guy. I weighed about 45 pounds more than I do now, pretty big. And people would tell me, hey, man, you want to lose weight? Exercise. Eat right. All these things. And I'd listen to them. Yeah, you're right. And I exercised, but I was just going through the motions, trying to do things. I wasn't eating right. And I kind of got it, but I didn't accept it. But one day, I started doing what I had been told to do for years. And I started eating right. I became a spinning instructor. I started exercising. I got a heart rate monitor. I wasn't just going through the motions. I was really exercising. And the weight started coming off. And my wife said, "Woo, how you doing? And people, and people started noticing the difference. They were like, wow, what'd you do? And I said, I finally listened. Church. We tell you the gospel. God's telling you in black and white how salvation comes, how righteousness is achieved to an unrighteous people. 
Don't just believe it in your head. Feel it in your heart. And once you do, you'll see a change in you. You'll notice a difference. It won't make anything better. But, man, it feels a whole lot nicer. It just does. And people can look at you and say, whew, what is the difference? And you say, he's the difference. I accept it in my heart. I no longer just believed in my head. And Paul's saying this, because us, the Israelites, because you refuse that, this is where you are now. This is the reason God has set some of you aside. My second point, and the reason for Israel setting aside from God is this. God's presence setting aside of Israel is not permanent. God's setting aside of Israel is not permanent. It's partial and it's not permanent. He goes on, Paul does in verse 11, he says this. So I ask, did they stumble in order that they may fall? The word fall here means, are they out? Did they fall completely? And he says this, by no means. Rather, through their trespass, salvation has come to the Gentiles as to make Israel jealous. Now, if their trespass means riches for the world, and if their failure means riches for the Gentiles, how much more will their full inclusion mean? Now, in speaking to you Gentiles, Paul says, inasmuch then as I am apostle to the Gentiles, I magnify my ministry in order somehow to make my fellow Jews jealous and thus save some of them. For their rejection means the reconciliation of the world. What will their acceptance mean but life from the dead. So Paul answers the second questions. He says, hey, God's not completely done with Israel. Don't think that. No way. He's not done with them. And then, and then he gives two purposes why God has temporarily set aside Israel just for the time being. Put them in time out. And why? He says two things. One of all, first of all is, so the Gentiles, so us can receive his righteousness. The other reason he says is so I, make, I may make my people, my fellow kinsmen, my Jewish people jealous. He says, because of our trespasses, because of those that didn't believe, because the Jews hung the Messiah on the cross, because of that, that is allowed for the Gentiles to come and receive the blessing, receive the bright righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ. And Paul says, imagine if a trespass of something horrible that we did, something that, that is unexplainable, if that was blessing for the Gentiles, the undeserving people, imagine when God returns and fulfill the promises to us, the Israelites, imagine how much greater that's going to be. And Paul says, but my main reason is that I am an apostle to the Gentiles, and this is why. Because I love my fellow Jews. And when I'm out in the synagogues, as I'm preaching to the Gentiles, I'm hoping that the Jews are listening. I'm hoping that the change in the, Gentiles, the Gentile people, because they accepted Jesus Christ, I'm hoping that the change that they see in them makes the Jews jealous so some can be saved. So they can say, wow, I see the change in that Gentile. What is the difference? And, and I can say, he is a difference, Paul says. That's the reason. So I can save my fellow Jew. He uses the example of jealousy, envious. It's, it's funny. When a boyfriend and a girlfriend break up, and the boyfriend wants a girlfriend back, or vice versa, what do they do? 
The girlfriend wants a boyfriend back. They're at a dance. The girl starts dancing with the guy. And the boy says, oh, man, what have I done? I, I lost a girlfriend. I really want her. And Paul's saying, I want that for you guys, the Israelites. I want you to realize what have we done. I want him. How are you guys living your life today? Are you living as an example to others of who Jesus Christ is? Is the way you live making others jealous to a point where, hey, I want some of what they have. I'm so encouraged when I hear stories of our ministry here called Reengage on how couples going to re-engage change and they're out in their community and some other couple's friends or their see the change in them and say, wow, you guys are so different. You look so in love. What's the difference? And they say, well, I went through re-engage and now Jesus is the center of our marriage. And the couple say, I want some of that. Sign me up. Where can I do this re-engage? Because they are seeing an example from other couples that are loving each other the way God intended for a man and a wife to do so. I'm so encouraged when I hear stories of, of people come to me that at, at their workplace, if they're a teacher, whatever they're at, that people come to them and say, hey, will you pray for me? Or they ask, how, how do you keep it so cool and collect? Everything is falling apart in this world, but yet you have a confidence or a love in you. What is it? And they say, it's him. Are you being that type of person? This last week in my small group, one of my friends who, who's new to church and he's brand new to small group. We're sitting around and we're sharing. And he shared and he said this. He, gets, he says, I'm envious of what you guys have. I want that enthusiasm. And we're talking about salvation. He goes, how do I get that? We need to be that type of people that when they look at us, they say, I want Jesus. Let's make them jealous. Let's make them envious on how we live, how we interact with each other. In my life, one of those people, that person was my sister-in-law. If you knew my sister-in-law before Jesus, she was like a Paul, man. I'm telling you, she was bad. She wasn't that bad. She didn't kill anybody or persecute anybody, but she was way different. And then when she accepted Christ and I saw her, I went, Wow. What a difference. And I saw their marriage get strong, and I said, I want that. I want my marriage to be an example to others. I want my being a father, a friend, to be an example to others so they can say, I want that. Paul goes on in verse 16 saying this. He says, if the dough offered as first fruits is holy, so is the whole lump. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. But if some of the branches were broken off, and you, although a wild olive shoot, were grafted in among the others and now share, share in the nourishing root of the olive tree. Let me, let me stop here real quick. So Paul is giving two illustrations here. He's saying, okay, so you've got a lump of dough and you've got um, a root, a tree. And he says, okay, if the lump is holy or the dough is holy and you take a lump out, then that lump that comes from that dough that's just holy is also holy. All right. If the masa for the tamales is good, all right, and you take some out and you make tamales, if it comes from that masa, then the tamales are good. 
If the root is holy, and from that root comes branches, and those branches will be holy. And that's what Paul is saying. Abraham was holy, and he chose, God chose him. If he's holy, then the descendants from him are holy. And if we knock off a branch, if we take a branch out, and we bring in a wild branch, the Gentiles, and graft them into that holy branch, then we too become holy. We too receive the blessings that God has given his people. But then he says this. He gives warnings. Paul goes on and says this in verse 18. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. If you are, remember it is not you who support the root, but the root that supports you. Then you will say, branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. That is true. They were broken off because of their unbelief. But you stand fast through faith. So do not become proud, but fear, he says. For if God did not spare the natural branches, neither will he spare you. Note then the kindness and the severity of God. Severity toward those who have fallen, but God's kindness to you. Provided you continue in his kindness. Otherwise, you too will be cut off. And even they, if they do not continue in their unbelief, will be grafted in. For God has a power to graft them in again. For you were cut off from what is by nature a wild olive tree and grafted contrary to nature into a cultivated olive tree. How much more will these, the natural branches, be grafted back into their own olive tree? Did you all get that? So Paul is saying this. First of all, he said, hey, don't be arrogant, Gentiles. Take it easy. No se crean mucho, okay? Remember where you come from. It is because of the disobedience of some of the Israelite people that they've been branched out and you were grafted in. But if you too become disobedient like the Israelite people, how much more easier would it be for God to take out this branch, one that is not natural to that tree, and graft in what was natural to that tree? So be careful. Don't get arrogant. You... Gentiles do not support the root. You Gentiles do not support the Jewish people. The root supports the branches. The Jewish people support the Gentiles. And this is so true. There are 66 books in the Bible. How many of them were written by a Gentile or Gentiles? Two. And it's the same author. Luke. All others were written, inspired by God. He chose Jewish people. Our Messiah, the Savior of the world, a Jew. Let's not get arrogant, Paul says. We come from the Jewish nation. It is because of their disobedience that you guys are in. Let's not be arrogant. Now, I want to make one thing, thing clear here. Very important. God is not talking about salvation. He's not saying, hey, be careful. I might change my mind. As a, and I'm gonna, you're a branch. I'm going to get you out. No. He's talking about a nation, a people. He's established that. He's talking to the nation of Israel. And those that have been disobedient, he has branched out. And us, too, as Gentiles are disobedient, he can do the same. See, the Israelites were living in a rituals and, and religion for, religious forms. And they would understand, and after God would send them prophets and tell them, and even his own son, they still wouldn't accept. And because of that, he branched out. We need to be a church that does not become like the Israelites. 
We can't be arrogant. We need to continue to share the gospel with as many people as we can. We need to continue to invite others to come and see. We need to be humble and realize that we need to be so thankful that even though we're so undeserving, God chose a disobedient people like you and like me to spend eternity with him. My third point is God's presence setting aside of Israel is purposeful. God's presence setting aside of Israel is purposeful. So we've seen that it's partial, it's temporary, and it's purposeful. He says this, verse 25, Lest you be wise in your own sight, I do not want you to be unaware of this mystery, brother. A partial hardening has come upon Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come. And he says, I'm sorry, and in this way, all Israel will be saved. There's a misunderstanding here in this word all. Paul's not saying all Israel, because you're a Jew, because you're a descendant, you were born a Jew, you will be saved. That's not what he's saying. He's established that already. He said God foreknew some. He chose some. Those that believed are the ones that will be saved. What Paul is saying here is that those, those are the all. It's like if I were to tell you, Man, where were you last night at the party? It was great. Everybody was there. Well, not everybody was there. No, only the people that were invited. Only the people that were there were there. Paul's saying the same thing. And he goes on and says this. As it is written, the deliverer will come from Sion. He will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. As regards the gospel, there are enemies for your sake. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of their forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of gods are irrevocable. For just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have now been disobedient in order that, that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has consigned all to disobedience that he have, have mercy on all. When the fullness of the Gentiles comes in, Paul says. What is that? He's saying this. When the last Gentile received Jesus Christ, when the gospel is shared to the person, to the he or she, that God has chosen to be the last person, then the church will be raptured. And then the tribulation begins and the Jewish people, a lot of Jewish people will be converted. And at that point, God's going to return after the tribulation. He's going to establish a thousand reign kingdom for a thousand years. And the fulfillment that he has promised his Israelite people will come true. And we get to be part of that for eternity as he comes back and gives us the new earth and the new heaven. I get encouraged when I hear that. Because you know what? You can be that person. I can be that person that shares the gospel with somebody and then BAM! Just like going to Best Buy and, you, and you're the millionth customer and you do that purchase and BAM! Confetti comes down, balloons come down. Imagine that times a million. That should be encouraging. But it's, what's more encouraging is how Paul concludes these verses. He says, because of Israel, disobedience, I'm dealing with them corporately. 
just for a minute. And for that minute, for that time, I'm allowing others, the Gentiles, us, to partake in my blessings. We should be humble, church. Jesus came down from heaven. God himself became man and humbly lived a perfect life. And he hung on the cross for your forgiveness of sins and mine. We're so undeserving. And Paul is saying, we need to come with that attitude, a humbling attitude saying, man, we're so unrighteous, we're so undeserving, but yet you come and give mercy to those that are disobedient. And he says, your gifts are irrevocable. He's saying, hey, God promised us these things. And even though it seems that he's not there, or he's not going to fulfill his promises, he's saying, just wait. Some of you feel that way today. You're saying, where are you, God? Where are you in my relationship with my spouse? Where are you in my relationship with my kids? And God is saying, wait. I am doing something through you, maybe for others. So that others can see, wow, you're going through this really hard relationship with your husband, but you're hanging in there. You're going to re-engage. And through your pain, others are seeing who Jesus is, and they can be blessed. Imagine a church that truly believed that. Believe that what God starts, he will finish. That what God promises, he will fulfill. Imagine a church that was inspired and going out and sharing this gospel, knowing that in one day, when God is done, when God has chosen the last Gentile to believe, his promises will start to reign in. How encouraging would that be for us to go out and say, hey, maybe I can be that person. Imagine a church that by the way they lived, by the way we lived, people can say, I want some of that. Let's be that church. Let's pray. Father, again, I thank you for your truths. I thank you for your word. But most of all, Father, I thank you for your mercy. The more we realize how sinful we are, the more your mercy is magnified, Father. Lord, we should be humbled. Humbled that you have chosen us, a sinful people, to partake in your blessings, Father. Father, as always, I ask if anybody here has not accepted the gospel, has not accepted the truth of your son, Jesus Christ, that they do so, that they humbly ask for forgiveness and that they ask your son to come into their lives. And Father, I ask that those that have accepted your son as Jesus, have accepted your son, Jesus Christ, as their Lord and Savior, that they don't get arrogant, that they don't get humbled, but that they, that us, that we are in awe of your mercy and of your love. Father, I pray all these things in your son's name. Amen.